Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. NPR science correspondent Joe Palka set out to become a college professor. He ended up on the radio. And he's with me in studio right now. Uh, he's in Logan for several events for UPR and USU. Uh, we're going to talk about the art of reporting on science and the fascinating stories he's covered, including a story from Utah about the dangers of household sponges. His recent reporting includes stories on the Rosetta spacecraft getting ready for a rendezvous with a comet, a non-GMO way to get more and tastier tomatoes, a phone app that checks photos for eye disease, and why theories about black holes are full of holes. That's just some of the stories. Uh, Joe Pock is going to give a talk titled Unwrapping Science on the Radio. That's part of the Science Unwrap series presented by the USU's uh, College of Science. That's this evening at 7 o'clock in the Eccles Science Learning Center in the Emmert, uh, Emmert Auditorium. That event is free and open to the public. Hands-on learning activities and refreshments follow the presentation. And uh, Joe Palka's USU appearance is sponsored by UPR. Joe Palka, a, a pleasure to welcome you in. Oh, it's nice to be here. Uh, it's it's just a treat to, to have you in in town, and we've uh, we've kept you busy. A lot of activities. <laughs> Another yeah. busy day today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no rest. But that's fine. I mean, it, they're all interesting. Uh, it's it's really interesting to be in a in a place where public radio, you know, plays such an important role in the in the media firmament because you know it's not like there's hundreds of stations like in New York or Los Angeles, and so, you know, uh, I. I think it's great that that UPR is here, and, and I really enjoy when I get to come visit places uh, that I, you know, that carry NPR programming. It's great stuff. So you've been on NPR for uh, twenty some odd years. Yeah, it's been a dead end job for yeah. twenty years. <laughs> I uh, let's see. So I was uh, I was working as a, a print reporter uh, back in nineteen the early nineties, and. Uh, Really liked it. Uh, uh, I, I got it. We, maybe we might go back into how I got into this, but I had this idea that I wanted to help the public understand science. I thought public com- communicating science to the public was an important thing, and I was finishing up a, a science degree. And uh, my first gig was in public. I mean, was in commercial television, uh, local television news, and it was just too jarring for me. Uh, the The emphasis of local news in the news department tends to be, you know, traffic accidents and murders and garish, lurid things like that. And yeah, we I did I did did a science segment every every night, but it was not. Um, it was mostly about new treatments for this or new therapies for that, and we didn't really have a chance to do much in the way of news reporting. And so I made this really crazy switch to from local news to one of the most prestigious science journals in the world being a reporter for their news section. And you think, how'd that happen? And I'm still not really sure. And I could tell you how it happened, but the likelihood of it happening is, is, is negligible. Nobody goes from local news to Nature or Science Magazine, but I did. Uh, not local television news, anyway. Uh, but then after I'd been at Science and Nature doing sort of that kind of serious science reporting for seven years, I suddenly began to have this feeling like, you know, I'm sort of preaching to the choir here. Uh, it's one thing to talk to scientists about how important science is. Oh, yeah, well, if they don't think so, we're really in trouble. Mm-hmm. But I thought that it would be more fun to talk to people who, you know, were just interested in things, and I would do the science part of the things that they were interested in. And so when NPR came along and said, hey, how would you like a pay cut and a temporary assignment? I said, <laughs> sure. Are you kidding? That sounds great. <laughs> Uh, let's let's do a little of your uh, biography. You grew up in New York, Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. I uh, a lot of people say, God, that's so strange. What, how, what was it like growing up in New York? And it was like growing up. You know, right. <laughs> it was normal to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, uh, my folks lived in uh, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I uh, took the subway to school. Uh, 
<laughs> every day for whatever six years, uh, and then I um, I I was ready to go off to college when the time came. I really wanted to leave New York and. And I wound up at Pomona College, which at the time wasn't all that well known. I guess it's kind of become more famous. But people said, "How did? Why'd you go to Pomona?" And the answer is, "That's the only place I got in." Mm, okay. <laughs> it's a simple answer. Simple. Yeah. Uh, I I was I thought I'd like to go to one of the Ivy League schools, but they weren't so keen on me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I went off to Pomona, and it was great. I mean, it was so great. Uh, you know, my kids are are just doing the same thing in small liberal arts college and I keep telling them this is a chance to try everything everything mm -hmm. so I had a radio show I was not news it was you know pit tunes but I had a radio show I was I wrote for the newspaper I sang in the choir I played on the soccer team I I did everything that I could do that was available in the college that I was interested in and it was such a great time, you know. But I didn't. I didn't go in thinking I want to be a radio reporter or I want to be in anything. Mm -hmm. All I wanted to do was go through and, and learn about the world. And the best course I took, the best course I took was Swedish history. Swedish history. <laughs> Swedish history, not because I was burning desire to learn more about Swedish history, but because the teacher was so excellent and his approach was so refreshing. And 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 that is that experience in Swedish history has also turned into a life lesson because the guy who taught the class became a, a sort of a, I stayed in touch with him. He left Pomona to become the president of Reed College in or uh, Portland, Oregon. And then after he finished a stint at Reed, he went to the Huntington Library and Botanical Gardens in uh, San Marino, Pasadena, California. Well, in 2009, uh, he called me up and said, hey, Joe, how would you like to be uh, the science writer in residence at the Huntington Library? And I went, yeah. So for six months, I sat in Pasadena on and off, uh, uh, learning about what the library had in its collections, writing about it. It was t 2009 was a really fun year to be a science correspondent because it was the anniversary of Darwin's uh, birth and and uh, the 150th anniversary of the publication of his book on the origin of species, and it was just great to sit there and talk with people and have scientists in Southern California to talk to and have an office in the gardens and then go out at lunchtime and wander around these beautiful campus. So, but the the notion, I guess, the the through line is you meet people when you're in your teens or your 20s, and the people that you cherish, you sort of stay in touch with. And who knows? You know, not all of them became presidents of institutions, but they're all pretty great people. Yeah, it is true, isn't it? The the old friendships are the are the best, and sometimes the most valuable in in your life. By the way, uh, we have Joe Palka uh, in studio here, and uh, if you have a question or comment, we'd uh, love to get that through to Joe. Uh, the number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five been listening to Joe Palka on NPR for uh, some 20 years. And uh, if you have a, a question on one of the stories, maybe you'd like to quibble with one of the... Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the, delighted uh, to be... I get uh, a lot of quibbles. Yeah, you know, you that's, a, that's okay. a funny thing about being a science correspondent, though. You know, I'm not an expert in any of the things I talk about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I learn some. I, I In some topics, I've covered them long enough to be a little more adept. But most of the time... I learn the amount that I think I need to know to do a story, and then people say, well, what about this and that? And, then, and I have to say, look, I'm really not an expert. You, you want an expert, 
get the author of the study to come on the show. Um, if you have questions that are really good, if you if you want to say I didn't understand that, well, maybe I can try and explain it better. But it's an it's an awkward position to be in. Sometimes I'm not vouching for the science. I'm just trying to explain it. Yeah. Uh, and I want to get into that, uh, the, the art of reporting on, on science. Uh, first of all, more from your biography. Very interestingly, you ended up with a Ph.D. in sleep science. How does that happen? Uh, yeah, it's another question. <laughs> well, so I think I, we were talking before the show came on the air. So I had a, a, you know, again, happenstance. I was a freshman at Pomona College. My best friend went to Stanford. And he said, why don't you come up and visit me at Stanford? None of, neither of us were going to fly back to New York uh, for Thanksgiving. It was only a few days. So I said, sure. And there was a lot of people in, at Pomona who were from Northern California. So I caught a ride with one of them, and they dropped me off at Stanford. And my friend was living in a dorm that was uh, – the dorm resident was a guy named Bill DeMent. And Bill DeMent was – is the father of modern sleep research. He did work in the 50s and 60s that really – established the field, a lot of work on REM sleep. And he had at the time made a sleep lab in the basement of the dorm that he was the resident in. You know, you had the the bed with the electrodes on the head and the polygraph machine that measured eye movements and brain waves and respiration, I don't know, whatever else. And I was in Stanford without a place to sleep, and they had a sleep lab. <laughs> so, so I my first uh, role as a human guinea pig was was being a sleep subject in in one of Bildemann's sleep studies. And these were these were mostly uh, undergrads doing you know they weren't doing formal research. I don't remember signing an informed consent document, mm -hmm. but I don't think I'm, I I may have I don't know <laughs> it's a long time ago. But um, I just when I woke up uh, the next morning, and they would come into the room periodically through the night and say, "Are you having a dream?" And I would go, "Well." Yeah, and I whatever I would say yes, but it just amazed me that you could look at squiggly lines on a on a page of paper going and uh, measuring brain waves and eye movements and say he's dreaming now and come in and yes I was, and I just thought that was a window into the brain and I thought this is really interesting so. Even as a freshman, I started reading about sleep research. I volunteered for the summer in a sleep lab. I did volunteered every actually every summer while I was in college. I did some kind of sleep lab work. Volunteered some of it. Finally, I got some pay, paid work. And then when it was time, you know, okay, so I've graduated from college, and now what am I going to do? And there was a bunch of options that I came, I considered, and one of them was maybe I should go to graduate school in sleep research, and so I did. And that's the one again. <laughs> that's the one I got into, uh, and I, it, I was interested. The, the guy I went to work with was very interested in the visual system and sleep, and I was. But by the time I got to him, and this was at the University of California, Santa Cruz, by the time I got there, he had already abandoned the visual part of his research. So I got involved in his new interest, which was about. Uh, sleep and uh, thermoregulation and sleep and energy conservation. Because sleep is, uh, I have to tell you, sleep is essential. We know that. Sleep is seems to be restorative in some way, although it's a little hard to measure that. I mean, wh what's the difference between lying still, relaxed for eight hours and sleeping for eight hours? Well, it's something, mm -hmm. but it's a little hard to quantify exactly what's going on. And it's a little strange to think that as a vertebrate, we're going to put ourselves at risk to predators for eight hours by going unconscious. Right. <laughs> so there must yeah. be some important reason that we're doing this, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's 
to save energy, whether it's to consolidate memories, whether it's to restore muscle. I mean, but your brain doesn't switch off. Your brain is very active. So what's going on? I mean, what is this period of, of, of our lives, of one third of our lives that we, that we go out unconscious to the world? Well, I don't think those questions have been well answered yet. I really don't. And I, I was feeling frustrated about, I, I, about how the, I wasn't smart enough to get the answers. Mm. Let, me, let me leave it at that. Mm. And so, um, that, but that was how I got involved in sleep research. And then the switch to journalism, we can go into that if you want. That was equally straight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'd like to do that. First of all, um, you were on the way to becoming a scientist. Right. You, oh, you totally. got your PhD, yep. probably would, would become a college professor, you know, teach and research and everything. Yep. I'm interested about the motivations. And, and now you, of course, talk to a lot of scientists. Yeah. So your own and, and others' motivations, is it curiosity? You want to change the world? Is it uh, – uh, uh, what's what's the motivation? Well, for me, um, I, th- I think uh, – I think actually I was doing an interview just last Friday at Caltech with a guy named uh, Sri Kulkarni, uh, and he said it best, and I think this is true even in my brief research career, that you go along and you get interested in a topic, and then you do some work in it, and then at some point, you learn something that nobody else on the planet knows. You've seen something about the nature of the physical world that you alone possess. And, of course, you tell other people about it, but there's this brilliant moment when you've been thinking about a problem, you've thought of an experiment, you've gotten some data, you analyze the data, you look at it and you say, oh, my goodness, this might be what's going on. Now, I'll tell you the only place that that kind of happened for me, and it's a little obscure, so I won't go into all the details, but I was interested in what happens to human body when you put them in a cold room and tell them to go to sleep. Well, unfortunately, the simple-minded answer is they ask for a blanket. So that, that, mm-hmm. was, that was part one. But if you don't let them have a blanket um, and you measure core temperature and skin temperature and, and, and brain temperature, and I did that not by sticking something into their brain but something into their ear so that the blood flowing past the tympanic membrane is pretty close to the blood going through the brain – so it's brain temperature, sort of. And if you look at body temperature, it goes down through the night, and then it stabilizes at some point. Everything goes down. You're cold. It goes down. It goes down. It goes down. Then you go into REM sleep, and suddenly brain temperature goes up. Well, it's because the brain is very active during REM sleep. But it suddenly occurred to me, and I was seeing this in my data, that maybe in a simple-minded way – you're saving energy by going into this deep hibernation-like state where you're turning down your body's thermostat, but you have to keep your brain warm. And so maybe REM sleep, this strange period where your brain becomes active, is nothing more than a radiator. Mm. And it's just kicking up the thermostat for a minute, and then you come out of it, and you go back, and it drains. And, and then, But the whole point, you know, people talk about all the other reasons it might be there, but maybe it's just there to heat up the body. Mm. What a strange idea. But it came out of my data, you know. Now, I don't know that anybody's followed up on that, or I don't know if it's true or not. But that moment of understanding something, or maybe understanding, or getting an idea about something. Now, in the case of Sri Kolkarni, he discovered a millisecond pulsar. Nobody had ever seen this astronomical thing before. And he saw it. 
And he was going, oh, my gosh, I've seen something in the universe that nobody knew existed. Well, <laughs> sorry, bang the table. <laughs> if, uh, if that doesn't uh, get you going, then probably you shouldn't be a scientist. But that's, I think, what gets scientists going. Yeah, that, I, I can see that would be a very exciting it would would keep you going, and, yeah. then, and then communicating that to the world. Well, that's that, the part I like. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's that's what you do. Yeah, let's take a brief break. We'll be be back with more with NPR science correspondent Joe Palka. Um, he is in Logan for several events for Utah Public Radio and Utah State University. Uh, the uh, there's a public event uh, coming up this evening, seven o'clock. If you're going to be in the Logan area, you're certainly invited to come uh, to the USU campus. It's a part of the Science and Rap series presented by USU's College of Science. Seven o'clock, as I said, in the Eccles Science Learning Center, Emmert Auditorium. The event is free and open to the public. More with uh, Joe Palka. Get into talking about uh, how I made that transition from uh, being on a sort of a college professor track uh, to now communicating science on the radio. And I'm interested in uh, in how do you do that? There's a real art. And, and it seems like the public and scientists speak a totally different language. And uh, it's my theory, Joe, that you're, you're a, a translator. Anyway, we'll get into that following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Office of Global Engagement, Mr. and Mrs. International Contest, where culture reigns supreme. Contestants share the world through native dress, talent, and personalized videos. Saturday, November 22nd at 7 p.m. Details at globalengagement.usu.edu. This week on This American Life, people who live near the border in our country know there are checkpoints sometimes in the middle of regular highways up to 100 miles from the border. You have to stop your car, federal agents ask if you're a citizen, and people are now making videos of themselves refusing to cooperate. Quit being an idiot. Just I'm not being an idiot. It's a stance on principle, sir. No, it's a stance on you being an idiot. There are thousands of these this week. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are pleased to have in studio today for the hour, Joe Palka, NPR science correspondent, who uh, set out, as we've been hearing, to become a college professor. He was on that track. He got his Ph.D., and then somehow he ended up on the radio. We'll, we'll hear that story uh, coming up here. Uh, he's in Logan for uh, several events. Uh, the public event tonight, to which you are invited, is the Science Unwrapped series presentation. His talk will be entitled, Unwrapping Science on the Radio. Uh, the uh, series presented by USU's College of Science and uh, the visit to uh, Utah uh, to uh, Logan, uh, sponsored by uh, UPR. Um, this event is free and open to the public at 7 o'clock tonight in the Eccles Science Learning Center Emmert Auditorium on the USU campus here in Logan. Uh, Joe Palka, we heard a, a promotional announcement there uh, featuring uh, Ira Glass. Yeah. I, I think people... Want to know when, when they hear an NPR celebrity substitute yourself, they they want to hear, I don't know, dish some dirt back, you know, behind the scenes stuff. Do, do you know, Ira? Yeah. In fact, at, uh, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. So when I got to NPR in 1992, Ira was at the station, uh, at the network. Um, this is before This American Life and all these other things. But um, he was asked to do a seminar for a bunch of uh, station reporters and producers who were visiting from out of town. And because I was the newest boy on the block uh, at NPR, my editor suggested that I go along. So for two days, I heard 
or whatever, some amount of time, I heard, you know, how to do radio by Ira Glass, and it was brilliant. And I keep, I keep thinking about what he does and what makes his work so memorable. And I don't, if I, if I could do it exactly that way, I probably would. I'm not that, uh, I'm not in that league, I don't think, although I've, anyway. But he is just so creative. Um, he used to say, you know, think of some twist. Every story, every thing that you do should have some unexpected turn in it. That was one thing. And the other thing is just you, he has a way of making you think about, like in the promotion that you heard during the break about, about people being stopped at checkpoints and refusing to cooperate. And this tension between the 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 official and the guy in the car instantly, you know, you want to hear more about that. So it's part of his finding good tape, but he's he's great. I haven't I haven't talked to him that much in recent years, but you know, he's he just he has a way of telling a story that you can't. It's like you can't put it down. Mm. And then taking it maybe even you know another level of of production, uh, Jad Abumrad. Uh, if yeah. you talk a little bit about him, he's he's doing some some great work. Yeah, well, there's another. I mean, I think of them. R- Radio Lab for those people who don't know. Right. So Jad kind of burst on the scene about ten years ago, won a MacArthur Genius Award, I might add. Uh, and I really think, I mean, so Robert Krulwich is also one of the radio gods, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, and together they do something really special. But Jad. Uh, to me, Jad has music playing in his head all the time. And if you listen to his shows, it's it's the timing and the e- evocative nature of the way he tells stories that uh, is his thing. And he just – but it, it really – he's a musician to begin with. And, and every time I hear his story shows, I think – this guy, this guy's got a tape playing in his head. He he he's not just listening to the words by themselves, but he's cutting them up, he's replaying them, he's reintegrating them and moving them around in a funny way. But there's all because he hears this bigger thing, and it's like we're getting to listen in to his symphony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, and that, I think that's part of the reason that show is so good. And I'm glad you emphasize Robert Krovitz, uh, who's he's. He has a kind of a different way he looks at the world, and and uh, I think he contributes a lot to that show. He does, and you know it was very funny. Uh, uh, I remember when Robert moved back to NPR, also five or six years ago, seven years ago, I don't remember. And there was a bo- a staff meeting uh, among the people. He was joining the science desk, but he wasn't really joining the, joining the science desk. He was working in New York, and he was doing his own thing. And uh, people around the room were saying, well, we need Robert Cumberland. And and then Patty Naiman said, well, I don't know what you guys are upset about. I mean, the only person who might be upset a little bit, should be upset a little bit, is Joe Palka. And I went, what? But I realized what she meant was that that I was doing a little bit of the Robert Krulwich and that – that he kind of most overlapped with my thing. But he's Mm -hmm. in such a – I mean – He's so out there and and so great that I really, but I really appreciated Patty saying, 
you know, that I was even could, could, could be even compared with him. That, that made me feel really good. And then a couple years ago, in one of his blog items, oh, this was actually talking about the Mars landing in 2012. I'd done a bunch of stories. And he's so silly. Um, in, his, in one of his blog posts, he said, I want to be Joe Palco when I grow up. So, <laughs> so, so I, I'm a little up, I'm a little upset by that because I I want to be Robert Coolidge when I grow up, and I don't think you know I so we're sort of clawing over who's more childlike and going <laughs> to have more fun. But he's just uh, he's unbelievable. I have to I mean, it's he has a he has a cadre of of people that he's like really close to and he tends to really one of the things he does really well is identify uh, young talented people who um, do great things mm-hmm. and he he compliments them and gives them a voice and and he's really good at that I haven't I ha- I mean I I had hoped you know that we'd become big pals and we'd go off you know and braid each other's hair and stuff like that we haven't <laughs> we haven't really we haven't really had that experience partly because we're in different cities but partly because you know I don't know maybe we're doing our own things or something like that but I'm a tremendous fan another one obviously I think uh, people probably ask you about a lot is Ira Flato and uh, you in fact I learned last night at the presentation uh, you uh, you were principal uh, substitute host for him for several years yeah 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 actually uh, uh I discovered how you uh, appoint yourself to a job like that. Um, I called the people who maintain the online biography, and I said, insert the line, backup host for Science Friday. (laughs) That's how I I became the backup host for Science Friday. Uh, Yeah, Ira – again, Ira's another guy. So Ira has just – done it and done it and done it. In a sense, I have his job at NPR, um, but he left uh, after, I don't know, decade. I'm not quite sure how long he lasted at NPR as, as, a, as a staff reporter because he had big plans. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he went off and did Newton's Apple on television, which was a great show. And then he uh, started doing – he formed his own production company. And he actually got money from the National Science Foundation to start – uh, Science Friday, and as as I understand the story, and I'm sure somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, he basically came to NPR and said, "Look, I've got this Friday show. Why don't you give four other days of the week, and we can have this strip of shows in the afternoon?" So that's how all uh, Talk of the Nation came into being. Uh, he was initially Talk of the Nation Science Friday, and then about uh, I guess about five years ago. There were some budget issues. You know, he's always been outside, so it's been a it's a kind of an odd program. I think it's the only news program that NPR was purchasing to bring in house at the time. And then they said, well, it's not really a news program. So four days a week, talk of the nation news, Friday, science Friday, not news <laughs> organizationally. It didn't really matter. These are all things that the listeners were op- – I mean, it's opaque to listeners, but it made a difference internally. But there started to become some, I don't know, friction, differences of opinion, what have you. But I, I think the final – it was just a problem when NPR decided to drop Talk of the Nation and pick up this new program here and now, suddenly they're programming against themselves because – here and Now was a five-day-a-week show, and talk and Science Friday was a one-day-a-week show at the same time. And so the, <laughs> I think Ira, you know, just felt – and it was – it's an, an awkward, untenable situation because you don't want to be selling stations the same sh- time slot for two different shows. 
anyway, I, I don't. I mean, I'm I'm just reading. I, nobody's laid this out for me, but I'm just saying what I see. So that's when he um, he moved it away. And I'm not doing the show anymore just because he's now PRI, and that's just a structural thing. But he's great. You know, he he has a he has a loyal audience, and people. I mean. He is iconic. And when it, it's funny because people still say to me, I love your show. Every Friday I listen and I'm going, I haven't done it in two years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's okay. I say yeah. thank you. Yeah. It's funny how perceptions linger, isn't yep. it? Yeah. Uh, before we leave, Ira, um, you told a funny story last night. Maybe you could, could repeat. Uh, well, a couple of funny stories. Uh, first of all, Ira made it to national television. That's right. Uh, on the Big Bang Theory. That's and, right. I, I hadn't seen that segment, but I knew he was coming on. It was, I mean, I'm. I'm thrilled beyond words. I want that too. I yeah. got onto. I think I said I got into um, CSI Los Angeles. My cousin called me up. She's a big fan of CSI. I heard you last night, so I went back and got the tape. And and actually, what happens is these two people on the show are going off to uh, to investigate something, and they they have to leave their dog in the car. <laughs> and so they say, "Dog, don't worry, Marvin or whatever the dog's name is." Um, we'll turn on NPR so you have something to listen to while we're inside. <laughs> then this radio comes on and says, NPR is Joe Palka has our story. <laughs> and they cut to something else. But it's my moment of fame. So you did make it to national television. Yep. Uh, and I don't know if you're you know, willing to tell the other story. It's a very funny story. Uh, yeah. God, this is – I guess so. Well, so uh, it's just – it was a horrible – so I was – this was early on in my days of hosting. And – uh, I have to back up and say I have I didn't like local television very much, and and I thought that the anchors were just you know silly people who read the news and didn't really pay any attention to the content, and you put anything in front of them and they'll read it. And I thought, you know, what a doofy people they are, and I would never do that, and I'm much better than that, and I'm I'm so smart, blah 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 blah. Anyway, so I had my comeuppance when um, um, I was reading from a script at the end of uh, Science Friday in New York, and um, I was I wasn't that great of a reader at that time. I'm still not that great, but I'm I'm just burning through this. I'm reading great. You know, I'm reading the credits and who produced the show and who did this and who did that and you can send us mail and you can we love to hear from you and our producers this and and then I finish with uh, you know and uh, from NPR News in New York, I'm Ira Flato. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it said. <laughs> and I realized what I'd done and I sort of looked up and the producer and the and the and the engineer and the control room are sort of looking at me with these wide <laughs> eyes and I'm going Oh dear! Now what do I do? And the engineer, to his credit, opened up the microphone and said, "You know, oh, I'm just." And I said, oh, "I'm just kidding. I'm Joe Palka." And we finished the show. So I, I got out of it. You know, I. I but oh, was I mortified? I mean, seriously, Tom. Ten years before I could talk about this, and, and now I, th I think I'm. I think this is my therapeutic uh, moment. You know, I'm. I'm. I'm telling everybody at the right. moment. We're happy to be part of the, the oh, therapy. Yeah, thank you. Did this ever go back to Ira? Did he ever? Raz you about this, you know. I guess he could have. He, no, it, he uh, never yeah, did. I yeah. uh, and oh man, I mean, that was whenever I hosted after that. The first thing I did was I I would I didn't trust the staff to do it. I would go through every script and do a search for Ira's name and take it out if I mm. found it. Yeah. I just I you know because they use templates right every mm -hmm. week. Ira, this is the this is the same script. They don't change a lot of it. So sometimes they'd overlook things, and <laughs> not again. I'm yeah. not going to let that happen again. Right. But uh, no, Ira never. Um, 
He never said anything. I mean, yeah. Maybe he didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> Live radio can always be an adventure. That's that's for sure. Yep. Uh, we have with us in studio NPR science correspondent Joe Palka. Very happy that he's in Logan. Uh, grateful that he's uh, come for several events. He's he's uh, been here for a couple of days. Uh, be here today and. Uh, fly out to tomorrow. Uh, there's an event that you can go to if you're going to be the Logan area tonight. It's 7 o'clock in the Eccles Science Learning Center on the USU campus, the Emmert Auditorium. The event is free and open to the public. There are hands-on learning activities and refreshments following, and this is part of the Science Unwrapped series. Uh, the talk's titled Unwrapping Science on the Radio. We're going to get into a bit of that following the next break. We'll uh, hear a story very interesting story on a, a, a breakthrough way, a, a, an innovation on diagnosing eye disease. We'll hear the story. It's about three minutes, and then we'll uh, deconstruct that and ask, ask the story behind it, get into some of those issues uh, following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan, open Monday through Friday until 3 p.m., a wholesale retail company dedicated to crafting a selection of artisan breads and pastries, using old-world techniques of preparation and baking. Information at crumbbrothers.com. Bill and Camille Cosby have become important art collectors, although Mrs. Cosby says... Neither one of us grew up in homes with people who collected art because that really was something that the very wealthy, mostly white people did. The Cosbys on the art they've loaned to the Smithsonian and Bill Cosby's reaction to serious personal charges in the news, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Saturday morning at 6 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm very pleased to have with me for the hour, and we're coming down to the end of the hour here. We have about 15 minutes left in the program. Uh, with me is NPR science correspondent Joe Palka. You've heard his reports uh, for 20-some-odd years, and uh, the, the reports, of course, will keep on coming. I don't know, Joe, when your next one up will be. Actually, uh, I do. This is one of those rare opportunities where I, I think I, at least it's scheduled, I have a, a really interesting story coming up a week from Monday on Morning Edition, uh, where I'm talking about <clears throat> an attempt to implement a healthcare delivery system that was originally tried in Africa, and now they're trying it in New York. And the idea is to get um, community health workers to sort of be the liaison between the medical system and the community. And the idea is in Africa, you don't have a lot of medical experts to go to, and so you need those kinds of people. But in America, there's still these barriers to getting into the clinic. And so these people are saying, well, here's a good way of helping people once they get their instructions about how to manage their diabetes to really do it and mm -hmm. to keep them out of the clinic uh, mm -hmm. by knowing, uh, learning how to change their lifestyle and, and employing people who live in the community and understand what the issues are that people have that makes it difficult. Uh, they'll be coming on uh, Monday. By the way, that reminds me of week another- Week from Monday. A week from Monday, okay. Reminds me of another story you told. <coughs> Maybe we could have you tell this one. Uh, you uh, told a story about when you knew that you were Actually, a regular on on NPR. <laughs> yeah. so, so you start out. Yeah. You're the new guy, and oh, then, yeah. then you do a few stories. Yeah. So 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 when you know when I when I first got on the air, you know, it's like, oh boy, you know, I know it's going to be on. I'm looking at my watch. Okay, it's twelve minutes after eight. Okay, and my story comes on, and my wife and I were listening, and it's really exciting. And there's Joe, and I'm Joe Palka, NPR News. Oh, this is great. And then um, I did it. A, you know, a couple times we did that, and then one morning. The snooze alarm goes off, 
and uh, the the radio comes on, and it's me talking on the radio. And my wife rolls over and hits the snooze button. <laughs> so I knew by then I was a regular. That's when you know. <laughs> the thrill was – the bloom was off the rose at that point. That's right. <clears throat> I want to get into talking about uh, how you do your stories and, and the, the art. I think it is an art of uh, communicating science to the public. And I'd like to do this uh, through uh, one of your stories. So this is, this is the story about uh, a breakthrough, an innovation in diagnosing eye disease through photographs. Yeah, mm-hmm. So we'll get the intro. I think this is Steve Inskeep, and then we'll hear your voice. It's about three minutes long. Okay. Now let's follow up on the story of software that lets parents check their children's eyes. It's one more use for your smartphone, searching for symptoms of a dangerous illness. NPR's Jill Palka has been talking with a man who developed this smartphone app. His name is Brian Shaw, and here is the story of how the software became a reality. Here's what got Brian Shaw going on his software plans. His son Noah had to have his right eye removed as part of his treatment for a rare form of cancer called retinoblastoma. Shaw saw signs of his son's cancer long before doctors did, a white reflection coming from Noah's eyes in flash pictures. The flash was reflecting off tumors at the back of Noah's eyes. Shaw started seeing that white eye in pictures taken with his digital camera when Noah was just 12 days old. Doctors didn't catch the disease until months later. If I would have had some software telling me, hey, go get this checked out. That would have sped up my son's diagnosis, and the tumors would have been just a little bit smaller when we got to him. There might have been fewer. And maybe Noah wouldn't have lost his eye. Since the software didn't exist, Shaw decided he'd create it. Now, Shaw isn't a computer programmer. He's a chemist at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. So he looked for someone in computer science at Baylor who could help him. He found Greg Hammerly. Hammerly and some of his grad students wrote a program that uses something called machine learning to spot a white reflection in photos. Machine learning is about training a computer to do things by example. Using pictures of Shaw's son Noah and others that Shaw collected from parents who heard his story on Morning Edition, they trained the computer to recognize white eye. They also trained the computer what normal eyes look like. That was easier. We just go out and gather images on on the web that are public domain and we can get thousands, millions of images of eyes. They've now turned a version of their white eye detection software into a free iPhone app. I caught up with Shaw last week at a conference. He pulled out his phone and showed me how the app works. So the easiest thing to do is to just search your photos uh, with, for the white eye, and you just hit the button, search photos, and boom, it starts searching all your photos on your device. And it'll let you know if it sees anything. So it'll search what's on there, but it'll also, you can use it like you could point it at me and look to see if I had any on. Yeah, yeah, you can also hit what we call screening mode. In screening mode, the phone shines a light into your eyes and the phone's camera looks for a white reflection. The app says my eyes are normal. And getting normal right is critically important. If the app makes a mistake and says there's an example of white eye in a small child when there really isn't, that could easily freak out anxious parents. That's what I would be worried about, that it, there'll be over-referral and panic. Jane Edmond is a pediatric ophthalmologist at Texas Children's Hospital. At this point, it's not clear just how many mistakes the new app will make. But if the app does routinely get it right, Edmond says it could be a useful tool. Edmund says the real value of the new app may be in countries with lots of cell phones, but not a lot of hospitals or clinics. Think about places that have no doctor. Could this be, it's not a substitute for a doctor, but is it better than nothing? Well, yeah. And Brian Shaw is hoping the new app will be a lot better than nothing. Joe Palka, NPR News. 
Okay, so that's Joe Palka. That's one of your reports. You you probably heard that, but uh, we want to go behind the <clears throat> scenes here. So that that uh, I mean, the first thing is it's it's really cool. It's yeah. fascinating, and then you get to do this every day. Uh, so it, where I think the first question is where do you, where do you get your ideas? Where'd you get this idea? Well, this idea <clears throat> actually this <clears throat> excuse me this idea is. It's 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 exactly why I say yes when people ask me to go places. Um, I was visiting uh, the member station in Waco, Texas. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why they wanted me, but never mind. They said, "Why don't you come to Waco?" And I said, "You bet." So I go to Waco, and they say they show me the schedule, and on the schedule, just like we did here, they have this. Uh, we would like to pitch a story to you. And so actually they, they did it a little differently. They had the the PR lady from the university come in. And I have to say my heart sinks a little bit like this because oftentimes university PR people, they're like, oh, we have a new vice chancellor for facilities. Would you like to do a story about that? And I'm going, well, I don't know. And so, you know, you don't want to be rude, but you don't want to be stuck in a room while they're pitching something silly like that. And so <clears throat> I, um, I was a little apprehensive, but she came in and told me the story of this chemistry professor who invented or was was in the process of inventing this software. And, and, and she said, he's amazing and you really have to meet him. And I went, well, that does actually sound pretty interesting. So that night, like tonight, I was giving a talk uh, at, a, at, a, at a reception, and he came over and we talked. And I have to say there were a lot of other faculty who were very jealous <laughs> because they were supposed to talk to me too. But I was talking to him, and he just had – he just elaborated. I mean you heard the short version. He, he told me this. And I thought, oh, this is really great. Well, I didn't have any time to spend in Waco. I just talked to him for a few minutes. But what happened was – and actually listening to this piece, it's amazing how many different pieces of tape, recording devices, things – I don't know if any, nobody else would notice this, but I was thinking about it as the tape played. So about three or four weeks later, he said, hey, I'm going to be going back to Boston so that my son can visit the doctors that, he, that treated him because he goes every six months to make sure his tumors haven't come back. Would you like to meet up with me there? And so – me and my producer Rebecca Davis went up to Boston because I we were I was in the neighborhood. She would so we went and did, and it, we spent two days running around to doctors' appointments and really got to know these people. The kid Noah is just amazing. Brian is a very complicated guy, very interesting. I mean, I could do endless stories about him. We we talk a lot now just because I'm so interested. And then. And then we see this – he tells us the whole story. But the, but the software part of it wasn't ready yet. So we did that story. Uh, I actually did the interview with him in just about a year ago, October 2013. The piece came on the air, I think, in March. And then he called me up a few months ago and said, hey, I think Apple's going to be uploading this software pretty soon. Um, why don't you follow up? So I had to go out to Texas to uh, do another story that I was doing. So I went back to talk to him and talk to the colleagues he was working with at Baylor, the, the Greg Hammerly. So I got that tape, but then the app, the, it was a delay and we didn't get it. And, and so I bumped into um, uh, Brian at this meeting and you heard the tape where he describes, you know, here's how you use it. That interview lasted three minutes mm -hmm. <laughs> because I knew what I wanted from him. I just wanted him to give me a, a clear articulation of what the thing did. So I, op I took my recorder to my hotel room, took my recorder out of my pocket, interviewed him for three minutes. He said what I, you know, what I was asking, knew what I wanted, 
and it's boom, it's done. So something, how long do you interview people for? Uh, in some cases, three minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the pieces all went together. And, th- and that woman uh, from the Ophthalmological Society, she was also somebody I talked to, and she, she was using um, the, the, this app we use on smartphones called Report IT. So I got her on a smartphone. I got him on my uh, recorder. I, um, I got Greg Hammerly uh, on my recorder in his office in Texas. And then the first cut, cut of tape is from the original piece that we did in October a year ago. So it's, it's just all these elements that kind of came together in this last piece. There, there's a lot goes on behind the scenes. Oh, and absolutely. we should say, it, um, I think for listeners that may not know, that three minutes is very unusual. You, you, you'd go a long time, a lot of times, right? Well, I mean, I, I'm actually – so one of the things I'm going to do tonight when, when I give my – I think there were, three minutes, there was a lot in that piece. Hmm. I mean, there was a lot of information. And, yes, I have been doing longer pieces, um, and uh, I, 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 it's fun and you get to say more things. But I actually love that format. I mean, I don't know. Maybe – I hope it was clear. I think it was mostly clear. But you can – if you if – you, if you th- listen, in three minutes, you can get an awful lot of information into a piece, and it and it's interesting, and maybe you're left with the feeling, oh, I'd like to know more about that. But frankly, I'd really much rather people leave a piece thinking I'd like to know more about that than, oh, when is this going to end? So uh, three minutes, yeah, it's a little bit on the short side, but I have pieces that I'm going to play tonight that are two minutes. Mm. And I think they're chock full of interesting information, and they're two minutes long. Right. And you can do that. Right. I wonder, I'd like to talk a little bit before we close. We just have about five <clears throat> minutes left. Um, it seems sometimes, and you can correct this if it's wrong, that uh, you know you have a world of scientists who speak a language we don't understand. You have some scientists who are very excellent communicators, but some are not. And then you know, there's the public, and you're kind of in between. Uh, I wonder what the difficulties are in, in bridging that gap, communicating yeah. the, the science to people. Well, Susan Stamberg said to me a long time ago, uh, you're the communicator. So don't – if the scient- – you said some scientists are great at explaining their work, fine. If all I have to do is turn on the mic, ask the question, turn off the mic, and I'm done, that's great. I'm, you know, I'm not interested in working hard. I like to, <laughs> like other people <laughs> to work hard. But her point was, <clears throat> a lot of times scientists, you know, they're too close to what they're doing. They tend to fall back into jargon. They're not used to talking to the public. Whatever they don't, they don't always explain their work to the level of simplicity that I have to get to in order to communicate to the public. And honestly, the simplicity in many cases is awkward for them because it leaves out things that they would never dare say to a scientific audience. And they're uncomfortable saying it that simply sometimes because they think, oh, well, you're, you know, they're going to be yelled at by their colleagues. I'm over that. I, I don't mind. I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm not, I don't have a scientific career anymore. So if I oversimplify something um, to the point that specialists in the field say you've, 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 misrepresented it, well, that's bad. But it doesn't happen very often. But I'm usually way simpler than they would feel comfortable saying in front of an audience. So I take the, the, the metaphor, the analogy, the, the, this, the, the difficult explanation, and I let them talk more about the motivation. Because if you say to somebody, well, how would you get started in that? Um, what drew you to that field? Uh, you often find personal stories that 
allow scientists to become more real and more human. And what I want people to do is to hear the human being who's doing something really cool and don't be put off by the language and don't be put off by the jargon and don't be put off by the complexity. You're not being asked to go out and invent an app to, to detect white eye. You just want to hear about it and you want to think, gosh, here's a guy. He's a, he's a, pro, he's a bioinorganic chemist, whatever that is. He studies the interaction of, of proteins and, and metals. But he's also a scientist and he's suddenly thinking, gosh, I've got all these pictures of my son. I wonder when the white eye first shows up. And then I wonder if I can develop a scale that will measure the prevalence of white eye with the progression of the disease. And he's thinking like a scientist. And he thinks, well, I don't know how to write an app, you know, a machine learning app, but I'm in a university. I got people. This isn't, it's not the world's hardest software problem. None of these things require enormous breakthrough in science. They just require somebody to think like a scientist and think like, how can we solve this problem? Think like an engineer, too. Hmm. So, uh, I want to take a uh, an issue that has become heavily politicized. Uh, I'm talking about climate change, and and talk about the communication uh, factor there. Um, it, it seems more and more, at least to, to, to my view, that the scientists and a portion of the public are sort of talking past each other. I know from talking to some scientists that uh, at least some scientists get really frustrated. Yeah. With this, you know, they they say, look, you know, that <laughs> trust us, the science <laughs> is is showing one thing, and and you're not you're not receiving the message. But uh, you know, there are a lot of other factors, as I said, it's become heavily politicized. Yeah, it's uh, uh, I understand what they mean. Uh, it's made me wonder whether um, the facts are really all that people use to make a decision about. Um, there are a lot of examples right now of places where people feel very strongly about something even though the science doesn't or does uh, back up their position. So there are people who worried about the health risks of eating genetically modified foods. There's people who worried about the health risks of having a, va a childhood vaccination. There's people who worry about, you know, uh, uh, well, and there's people who don't worry about the effects of climate uh, change on our on our world. I I uh, I don't know uh, all the I can't deconstruct all all of that, but I do know that when I report, and this is the model I've been using, I simply say, here's what the question was that was being investigated. Here's what the results are. Here's what the scientists think they mean. I'm Joe Palka. I'm not telling people and you should change your behavior, and you should stop driving a gas-guzzling car. It's up to people to make those decisions. I think in the case of climate change, the danger is far off. I mean, you go outside, it's cold today. How could the earth be warming? It's freezing out, you know? It's one of those things. Whatever happens is happening slowly. It's happening in many places that we don't see. And, and it's happening in a longer time scale, you know, decades or hundreds of years even. So that's one problem. The other problem is, and I've been bothered by this ever since we talked about it, yes, something is happening. What's the right thing to do about it? Should we all throw our cars away and live in teepees? I mean, or, you know, tents or whatever. We live in a society where we consume energy. What, what are we supposed to do? So the simple-minded thing is we've got to conserve. Well, maybe conservation is a waste of time. Maybe, maybe it's too late. Uh, 
everybody says, well, it seems to make sense that if we've got too much carbon in the atmosphere, if we put less in, that would be a good thing. But the truth is, yeah, it probably is a good thing, but we don't, all we know is that I think, I think there's an unmistakable signature of human activity on global climate. What that's going to mean for the future of the, the Earth and what we're supposed to do about it, we know a little bit about what it's going to do, and we have some ideas about what we should do about it, but it's not locked in stone. The only thing that's certain is that something is changing because of human activity. I, I think people who deny that are just denying a reality. But I do think that the confusion comes with what should you do about it and what really is going to happen in the long term. And, and the answers are not 100% clear. You know, is the hurricane season that we had last year related to climate change or not? And is the temperature we're experiencing today related to climate change or not? Those are difficult questions. And the fact that scientists don't have all the answers leads some people to say, well, they don't know anything. And that's wrong, too. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, there, there, and that's an interesting place to leave it. We're kind of leaving people hanging. Right. But if you're going to be in uh, the northern Utah area, you can certainly come tonight, mm -hmm. 7 o'clock, hear much more from Joe Palka. You'll hear some tape, and uh, you'll hear uh, Joe uh, talking to the uh, topic, Unwrapping Science on the radio. It's part of the Science Unwrapped series uh, presented by USU's College of Science. That's tonight, as I mentioned, 7 o'clock, Eccles Science Learning Center in the Emmert Auditorium there. The event is free and open to the public. Joe Palka, thanks so much for uh, coming out to Logan. Thanks so much for coming on uh, Axis Utah. This is a great thing. Had a good time. And uh, we uh, will have much more, of course, on uh, Monday. Uh, Jeff Metcalf with his memoir, Requiem for the Living. And uh, thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Culligan Water of Cache Valley, family owned and operated for more than 62 years providing Coligan bottled water, salt delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey, Coligan man, service from the man in blue. Online at logan.coliganman.com. And the College of Science at Utah State University. Public outreach information on our Facebook page, Cache Valley Science Kids. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu slash science. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM HD1 Logan.